Today's reading is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be uh, with you. Uh, this is the third of three talks, although I didn't give talk two because last week I was poorly with a malfunctioning wisdom tooth and I ended up being in hospital uh, for three days, two nights uh, last week, which meant that uh, the logic of the talks, uh, the, um, the, the whole logic, the flow of the argument uh, has been derailed to some extent. So what I'm going to do is basically condense the whole series into one talk now for you and give it to you all intravenously. Um, and hopefully it's not too much for you guys to digest. Really, the essence of the talks is, as Claire has flagged, um, the intellectual credibility of Christianity. It's constantly argued these days that believing in God and the biblical accounts is akin to believing in Santa Claus and fairies at the bottom of the garden. And as a result, Bible-affirming Christians are increasingly labelled gullible, ignorant, simpletons, and intellectual pygmies. That's what some of your friends are saying about you, I'm afraid, and me. And if you're a Christian, it's believed that you, well, in the 21st century, you just have to suspend all logic and rational thinking. I mean, as intelligent people in the 21st century, can we really believe in an invisible God and life after death and all those science-suspending miracles that Jesus performed. Um, I don't need to tell you, we live in an age that is increasingly full of scepticism and a culture that seems to have an unquenchable thirst for conspiracy theories. So one of the fastest-growing myths alongside the flat-earth myth is that well, it's not anymore that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, but that Jesus never existed at all. That is a fast-growing myth in the UK at the moment, that Jesus is just legend. So can I, as a rational, intellectual, tertiary-trained person, believe in Christianity? Well, I believe you can. I believe Christianity is intellectually sustainable. And I want to tell you that today in no uncertain terms that it does hold water, that it is logically and historically uh, credible and doesn't require the suspension of all rational thought and you have no reason at all to doubt the existence of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you. Here we are under Parliament House and you are and you work alongside many significant intellectual people in the country and I want you to be absolutely confident in the intellectual credibility of your faith. Did you know that of all the Nobel Prize recipients of the 20th century, I think there's about 500 of them or so, 
over 65% of them identified themselves as Christian. Um, I know, and I'm sure you know, a lot of Christians who are very smart. I know Christians who are solicitors, brain surgeons, historians, judges, archaeologists, chemists, mathematicians, philosophy lecturers, and professors, and none of them take their beliefs lightly or feel the need to suspend the intellectual side to accommodate their faith. There are men and women who have good, intelligent reasons for believing in God and taking the Bible seriously. And so dismiss all Christians as naive or gullible or infantile in their thinking, I think, is unfair and simply not true. In fact, it can be argued that some of the smartest people who have ever lived have or have had a faith in God and have taken the Bible seriously. Let me list some names for you. Consider these names. Origen, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Kremner, Martin Luther, Lewis Carroll, James David Forbes, Lord Kelvin, Leo Tolstoy, Karl Barth, C.S. Lewis, Alvin Plantinga, Lynn Kohak, N.T. Wright, Jennifer Wiseman, John Lennox, William Lane Craig, Alistair McGrath, just to name a few. You may have to Google a few of those names, but I can assure you all of them have had or still have brains the size of a small country. This passage in Luke's Gospel is one of the many reasons I take the Bible seriously as an intelligent human being, particularly what it's saying about the truth of the Jesus story. Let's not distance ourselves from the first century Christians and their audience. They all knew that what Jesus did did, ran against the grain of normal behaviour. They all knew that Jesus walking on water was strange, or him being born to a virgin, or him being able to heal the sick, or calm a storm. They all knew that that ran against normal, credible, intellectual reasoning. And so that's why they came up with introductions like this. I do believe Luke is writing to the sceptic and saying, look, I know this sounds weird, I know this sounds strange, it runs against rational, logical thinking, but this is what happened. And he begins by saying, many have undertaken to draw up an account. Now that is very eye-opening for historians. Christianity doesn't come to us from one source, it comes to us from many different sources. Many people saw and many people wrote about Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, we have the four Gospels, but we also have the writings of other uh, figures from um, uh, the first century. Paul, James, um, Mark wrote under Peter, Luke wrote under Paul. Um, so there are many figures behind our um, information on Jesus. And in addition to the New Testament, we have other sources, as many as eight or nine non-Christian sources on the life of Jesus. So it shouldn't surprise us that many have undertaken to draw up an account. It gives us great confidence that this just doesn't come to us from one person, but many 
Many have undertaken to draw up an account. Now the word account there, it's only used here in the New Testament and nowhere else. But the word account, or sometimes translated narrative here, many have undertaken to draw up a narrative. This ancient Greek word was only ever used in antiquity to talk about something that happened in history. It was never used to talk about something that was referred to as myth or legend. The Greek philosophers like Plato, Aristotle and Socrates all used this word that Luke uses here when they were writing about something that was considered true, historically accurate. This just flies in the face of anyone who says, oh, the, the New Testament writers were writing in a very symbolic way and it wasn't meant to be taken literally. Well, nowhere in antiquity does anyone else use that word in that kind of way. It was always referring to historical narrative. So many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Luke doesn't say that have been fulfilled in a galaxy far, far away a long, long time ago. He said these things have been fulfilled among us. He was writing to contemporaries, which meant that anyone who questioned what Luke or the other gospel writers were saying could go and check it out for themselves. If he was talking about uh, Bethsaida or Capernaum or Jerusalem and a certain event, now even though he was penning 30 to 35 years later, that, there were many people from that generation still alive and you could go and interview the people who were there at the time. You could go and see, stand on site yourself. So Luke tells us that these things have been fulfilled among us. We are contemporaries and you can go and see for yourself. That raises historical eyebrows amongst historians. It's very important to see that their gospels were written in a contemporary culture. Verse 2, Luke says, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses, well, I covered this word eyewitnesses in the first talk three weeks ago. There's a lot we can pin and milk out of this word eyewitnesses. But just to remind you, the Greek word for eyewitness here is autoptai. Two Greek words, auto and opus. Self and seeing. Those who saw with their own eyes. Luke was a doctor, he's using a medical term here. Autopsy is where we get the word autopsy. That's who I've, witnessed, I've interviewed. Luke himself, as I said, wasn't one of the 12 apostles. He wasn't one of the first eyewitnesses. He wrote under the eyewitnesses, but that's who he's interviewed. He's interviewed the apostles. He's interviewed Paul, who met Jesus at least briefly. He's interviewed them. He hasn't interviewed second-class ear witnesses but first-class eyewitnesses, those who saw with their own eyes. Mark was the same who wrote under Peter, but let's remember Matthew and John were eyewitnesses. They were part of the inner circle. They were part of the uh, 12 disciples, the 12 uh, apostles. They saw with their own eyes. They felt, they touched, they heard with their own ears. They were the first eyewitnesses. Those who had literally opened it up and seen with their own eyes, that's who... We're reading here. 
So many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants or messengers of messengers of the word. And therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated, Luke has done his homework really well. It's not haphazard, but he's done it really carefully, really well investigated everything from the beginning and Luke as you know is one of the two gospels in the New Testament that narrates everything from the very beginning of Jesus life Matthew is the other so we get the Christmas story the the conception and the birth of Jesus from Matthew and Luke I've researched everything very carefully we believe that Mark's gospel was probably the first gospel penned And Matthew and Luke borrowed from Mark and then added their own additions um, in accordance with the purpose of their their writing. And Luke has done his homework and I think, I really do believe, he's interviewed Mary to find out exactly what she was feeling, what was going on. So we've got the Christmas story through Mary's eyes in Luke's Gospel. Matthew narrates it through Joseph's eyes in his Gospel. I've carefully investigated everything. And he writes this with such detail, with such precision. You see his careful investigation in everything he writes. Now, he writes not only Luke's Gospel, but he is also the author of the book of Acts. Luke wrote Acts as well. Now, Luke is 24 chapters long. Matthew is 28, but actually Luke's the longer Gospel. In terms of volume of words, sentences, Luke is the longest gospel. And he also wrote the book of Acts. He's the biggest contributor to the New Testament. He outdoes Paul. Paul wrote 13 uh, letters, epistles in the New Testament. But the volume of work uh, uh, that Luke pens is greater than that of Paul. And as you go through Luke and Acts, you see his detail, his precision, Do you know that Luke mentions or references over 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands? And mentions almost 100 names. So we can go and check it out for ourselves. You can see, and as I mentioned in the first talk, once a year I take people to Israel and show them the sites, the places, Basically, we've got the GPS coordinates of where all these things happen from Luke and others to make sure that we, he knows that he's done his investigation very, very carefully. And then he says, as he writes in the rest of verse 3, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, as an Australian... Can I just say those words are gold to me? Because if you know any Australians, we just like, we just like it simple. We do, we, no airs and graces, just tell us as it is. Uh, tell us straight, Luke. I, I, I do feel Luke is part Australian. And, <laughs> and, and he just tells it straight. You know, just this happened, then this happened, and then he went here and did this, and this is how these people were feeling, and this is the reaction of these people. And so he just tells us from cover to cover, just this straight, orderly account. 
C.S. Lewis apparently once said, give me Christianity like I take my whiskey, straight. And C.S. Lewis was Australian, and (laughs) maybe not. But that's how Luke does it, just give it to me straight. And he does indeed. And he writes to some person named Theophilus, we're not sure who Theophilus was, it's only mentioned here and at the start of the book of Acts. Some say that this is a pictorial name, Theo meaning God and Phyllis meaning love, God lover. I don't think that myself. He um, was probably some sort of official who uh, heard about Christianity a bit, probably through something to do with the Apostle Paul, and Luke writes to him to give him the whole backstory to Paul's story and beyond. And then verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The word certainty here is um, from the Greek word asphilian, from which we get the word asphalt from. Concrete, bedrock. He says, I'm writing to you, Theo, to give you concrete asphalt certainty in the things that you have heard or that you've already been taught. It's as if Luke is saying, everything I'm about to tell you, it does sound weird. It does rub up against normal, rational thought. But what I've come to do here is to tell you this really did happen. And I've done my research carefully. And I've interviewed the eyewitnesses. And I'm just writing this orderly, systematic, chronological account for you so that you can have faith in an intellectually credible, sustainable way. I really do hope, folks, that you do have confidence in the Bible, in what we believe together as brothers and sisters. And you do sympathize with the skeptic and you do sympathize with the doubter but do know at the same time that our faith is real it's true it is intellectually sustainable and let me this is almost a footnote as i sign off on this little series but as our culture as our society is saying more and more these days that Jesus never existed. It is one of the fastest growing myths in the UK, folks. Can I just say, a few, fr- a few years ago now, a friend of mine in Australia who holds a PhD himself in the field of Greco-Roman first century, or in a particular field of Greco-Roman first century ancient history, and is the author of about 12 books. He became a Christian with me in high school. He recently got in contact with three eminent ancient historians and asked all of them, and they're all non-Christians by the way, he asked all of them, all three of them, if they knew of any credible historian that firmly held the view that Jesus didn't exist. And all three of them wrote back to him, no. And one of them, Professor Graham Clark of the Australian National University, a non-Christian, 
emailed my friend back these words. Frankly, I know of no ancient historian or biblical historian that would have a twinge of doubt about the existence of Jesus Christ. The documentary evidence is simply overwhelming and you can quote me. And so I am. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, thank you for this opening sentence in four verses from Luke and how he does right to give us confidence and boldness in the truth and historicity of what we believe. Help us to confidently hold on to our faith, to realise its intellectual sustainability and to therefore go and proudly proclaim it and share it with our friends. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.